Grease Freak. They got they got grease, grease and dirt muck underneath it. Is, is that the nail biting result, Brian? Uh. <laughs> From the Canoe West Media Studio on the shores of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada, it is December 2017, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and basically anything else that crosses our mind. Completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by our regular Overland co-host, and I'm going to start with, as usual, start with Shirley Hardy Ricks. Shirley, where are you? How you doing? I'm at home in the goldfields where the sun is shining and it's about 27, 28 degrees and the pool is 24 degrees. So when we finish, I think I might be going for a swim. Wow, you poor thing. Did you say in the goldfields? Yeah, where we live is in the the centre of the old Victorian goldfields. Is there any gold left? Oh, yes. Someone found a nugget the size of a fist about four or five months ago. So there's still plenty of gold around. It's just a matter of where you find it. The size of a fist hmm. that's huge correct well we also have brian ricks who is usually right there with shirley but now brian i have no idea where you are where are you well, i'm 440 odd kilometers away from shirley uh up in sunraysia which is near muldura heading towards broken hill which is heading towards the outback of australia where uh my dad's uh, my dad has passed so i'm up at, at the farm cleaning out the farm and uh looking at this old tractor that I'm going to try and resurrect. And how long are you going to be there for? Oh, only a couple of days uh, trying to sort this this out. I've uh, cleaned out the rats out of uh, from nesting in this tractor that's been parked for 50-odd years in a shed, and um, hopefully I can get up this old grey Fergie, and I'm sure the uh, UK um, listeners and uh, Aussie listeners will understand what a grey Fergie is and uh, how they are, they're an iconic vehicle uh, that... Uh, Saved a town during a flood by um, building a levee bank. All the, all the farmers got together and used their grey fergies to build this levee bank that saved the town of Wentworth. So um, this old fergie runs on caro and petrol, so she's an oldie. When you say farm, because I know in Australia you guys got these massive farms, are you talking like a couple hundred thousand acres? <laughs> um, no, this this is an irrigation settlement. So after the First World War, they divided it up into what they called soldier settlements, uh, which was enough for people to live on. And uh, my dad had four of these and um, grew oranges and grapes and things like that. So the farms are around about 100 acres in size, uh, mm. the one that dad had. Um, but just across the border, that's when the big acreages start, two, three, four, five thousand 5,000 acres. Uh, minimum, and of course, um, there's a station not far from here which is bigger than Belgium. Uh, and is that birds that we hear in the background? Uh, yeah, probably. I'll have yeah. to shut the door, won't I? No, no, I, I kind of like it. That's that's kind of nice there. At least it's not a cat meowing. I know one time we had a cat meow. I don't know where that came from. Uh, I, I'll leave Graham. Shirley. Was it Graham or was it Shirley? <laughs> well, my cat's very noisy, and he's likely to. Um, to appear at some stage during our chat because it's getting towards his dinner time. Oh, yeah, and we certainly wouldn't want to hold that up for just this recording. We <laughs> also we also have Sam Manicom, of course, who, Sam, what, what time is it and where are you? Hey, top of the morning, everybody. It's um, just after 5 o'clock in the morning oh. and I'm in Exeter in the UK. 5 o'clock in the morning, that is early. So if it's 5 now, you had to have been up for at least a half an hour. 
Oh, at least. No, I got up at about quarter past four, um, had a cup of tea, bowl of muesli, um, sat and read some some emails and posted around and actually was sitting thinking about um, Christmas, funnily enough, because uh, Birgit and I were out and about in the city last night in the Christmas markets on. I'll tell you what, it's it's such a buzz. Um, you know, it's all lights and smells, chestnuts and glue vine and all of that sort of stuff. And um, funny enough, we picked a really good times last night just by sheer fluke. And it wasn't particularly full when we started wandering. But within about half an hour, the place was just rammed with smiley faces. It was such a, a good feeling. I really like this time of year. It's one of the great things about being in a city, isn't it? There, there's so much going on where we are here uh, on Vancouver Island. I mean, you don't see many lights unless you go for a drive somewhere. Although we do have a, a parade here in the in the closest town that I, I sort of bumped into. I didn't know was happening. But the, the exciting part, well, the exciting thing that happens here as far as lights go is at one point, I don't know when it is, but sometime, anytime now, there will be a parade or two of boats going up and down the strait, which will be all great big fishing boats and they're all covered with lights and Christmas decorations. It's really cool to sit and watch, but that's about the, the excitement in this part of the world. I like the sound of that. Um, I mean, you must have also seen the footage of the Canadian trains all dressed up in their Christmas tree lights and so on. Um, that's quite phenomenal footage. Have you, have you seen that, Jim? I knew you were going to put me on the spot. No, I haven't. How did I miss this? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. you, you've got to do a YouTube on it. Um, I don't know how it all came about, but somebody decided that they were going to decorate their train from one from beginning to end. And of course, you know how long Canadian trains can be. Um, and they did it with with uh, Christmas lights, and this is just absolutely phenomenal to watch. It's um, it's spectacular. Well, I'll have to I'll have to look that one up. Also, first thing in the morning. Oh, wait a second, let me just double check here. Yes, it's it's very early in the morning. Graham Field, all the way from Bulgaria. Hello. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I would love to get like a little seat that we could ship to Graham. Maybe we could pitch in on this with a remote control. And that seat would just be like a little, like a sort of an electric shock thing. And we could all have a button. And, <laughs> you know, and it's sold. It's, yeah, it's just sort the of. Batteries, the, batteries are, the batteries would go flat, Jim. I could just keep pushing the button. <laughs> <laughs> Graham, what's happening in your part of the world? Oh, uh, not much. You know, it's just getting light. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's early in the morning. Nothing's happening. Just sitting in front of a computer staring in my face. Just stand by because <laughs> I'm really going to get them cranked up here now. How are the cats? Uh, I locked <laughs> them out because they're just going to be a disturbance. But they're all healthy and, you know, they're doing fine. Yeah, because was it the last show or the one before when my, one of my cats had gone missing? Yeah, I think I, that I was the last one. I hadn't seen him for four and a half days. Uh, which was uncharacteristic. And uh, we've got a, a village Facebook page, and I put on the village Facebook page, anybody since so long, I haven't seen him for four and a half days, within 10 minutes, he comes through the cat flat. Oh, is there any food? <laughs> You've just made me look like a completely neurotic cat owner, and you can't even acknowledge me. <laughs> so that was embarrassing. Well, it's, I'm so glad that it was a, you know, a, a nice cat story to, to have that beautiful Oh, ending. that's where compassion gets you, though. It just makes you look like a neurotic idiot. I'm not going to care about anything anymore. <laughs> Oh, Graham. I don't believe that for one minute, Graham. <laughs> well, from, from my part of the world, just down the coast, we have Grant Johnson. Grant, good evening. Good evening, everybody. Good to be here. What's happening down on your part of the coast? It's really dark. 
And it's been really dark for days and days and days. But there's a couple of days on. I wasn't sure if it was morning or noon or middle of the night. It was. It's just been crappy weather. But we actually got a good good day today. Yeah, today uh, was beautiful. Yeah, for the first time in how long? Yeah, I know. And, and we've got this stretch of weather. Well, it depends on what what forecast you look at. See, my theory is we we have two different forecasts. We often check one is the government one, and then the other one is the, the weather network. And I just go for whatever has the best forecast. I don't know who would want to choose the other forecast. And that's the one I stick with. I don't, I mean, I checked the five-day forecast a couple of days ago. I'm not checking it again because it looked great. Oh, good. Good to hear. I've got three apps on my phone for checking the weather and none of them ever agree. So I, I like your philosophy. Pick the good one. Take the good Pick one. The good stick one. with I'll the go good one. Absolutely. Uh, Molly worried about the dark, Shirley. What's it? Which sunshine, sunshine, and more sunshine, isn't it? The forecast uh, for the next week. Bragging, bragging, uh, it is bragging. for the next week, but um, we did have the uh, Armageddon of rain predicted for last weekend. Mm. And, and what did we get? Um, we got about 60 mil. Mm, oh, good yeah. But it was yeah, just but enough. our son got 200 and had the water lapping at his back door. And uh, his wife couldn't actually go out and check the rain gauge because it was in the middle of the flooded backyard. <laughs> wow. Where, where does he live? Uh, he lives at Echuca on the Murray River. Right. Which is, uh, you wouldn't know where that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's about uh, three or hundred kilometres north of us. Uh, on the border between Victoria and New South Wales. Uh, and, you know, it's a, it's a land of uh, flooding rains and droughts and all that sort of stuff, and we get we copped a lot. But the Murray River runs not far from where you are now, isn't it? That's right. I'm at the other end of that river. That's very, very true, Sam. Yep. I did a bit of farm work in Mildura while you were describing your dad's farm. I was just having a, a bunch of memories flooding back. Yeah, it's a what great did you pick, Sam? Um, cherry tomatoes, which is one of the most soul-destroying fruits that you can ever wish to pick because you're paid by the bucket and it takes a blooming long time to fill a bucket. And um, capsicums, so um, red, green and yellow peppers. Um, it was good work. Really, really nice farmer who was just desperate to have people pick his fruit. He'd um, not been able to get enough labourers and um, he'd just ploughed two fields worth of crops back into the ground because he hadn't been able to get them picked in time to get them to market before they would have gone off. That's so destroying. Yeah, that's the problem. And, you know, any world travellers that are looking for a bit of extra money, come and pick fruit. There's always plenty of picking. Uh, you can follow the seasons right down the coast of Australia. You can pick you know, dried fruits, uh, uh, stone fruits, I should say, all the way through cherries and oranges and grapes. And a lot of people in the old days, that's how they made a living, just picking mm -hmm. fruit. Well, wait for that yeah. because we are going to talk about that uh, on the show. But you know what I was going to mention to you guys, you may not realize, this is show number 24 for us. That's two years. Hey, hey. Wow. Wow. wow eh? Right. I mean, that, that really flew by. That's incredible. So that's really great. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's good. I was going to get you to all sing happy birthday, but um, oh, you don't, don't want that. Don't. You seriously don't. No, don't. no, come on. We need to do this. I sound no. at my best vocally at this time in the morning. <sighs> so oh, no, to kick no, things no. off for this uh, for this episode, um, we're we're coming close to Christmas. It, it is December. We're recording this on you know early December, December fifth. Graham uh, had an idea. Or was it Sam's idea? I'm not really sure. Oh, Sam's. <laughs> oh, I think I think we both had it at the same time. Because I think you both did. Just, I think you got it after you read Graham's. 
<laughs> so in any case, must have done. It, must was, have done. it was Christmas. It was places that you spent Christmas, which I think is kind of cool, you know, to, to think of uh, or to tell some stories about places you, that you guys have spent Christmas while on the road, while traveling somewhere, some uni- unique spots. So since it was Graham's idea originally before it was copied by Sam and reiterated as his idea, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're going to kick it off with Graham. Well, I still got two. I got one, one from the suggestion that was my idea, and another story from the suggestion that was Sam's idea. Opportunity, so. <laughs> Two stories of Christmas. Um, okay, I don't want to hear bar humbug from anybody, right? But I don't like Christmas. I don't like it for lots of very good reasons, and I'm not going to go into them. So my way of spending Christmas is to avoid any possible way of acknowledging that it's happening. I mean, in the past when I've backpacked, I've been in Thailand or something where, or a Muslim country where it just doesn't occur at all, uh, Buddhist country in the case of Thailand. Um, so one or two, one of my two greatest Christmases was what I generally do after the motorcycle live show in the UK, which is in late November, uh, I used to get away as quick as I can down to Denver where I had a KLR stored in someone's goat shed and then head down to Mexico. And one year, I the first couple of days were such cold riding, high altitude riding in Denver. But And I used to make uh, like hand guards out of milk crates to try and keep my hands warm because I knew after two days I wasn't going to need them anymore, but I just to try and keep the chill off my hands. So two really cold days of riding and then get down to Texas. And there's a national park called Big Bend National Park. And it's right on the border of the, it's, uh, the, the river that runs through. It's the Rio Grande, which separates America from, uh, from Mexico. And they haven't got a wall there yet. In actual fact, you can, walk <laughs> you can walk across the river into Mexico. I mean, it is, uh, and actually Mexicans will walk across and leave on the rocks uh, little bracelets and stuff that they've made. And you can leave a dollar and take a bracelet. It's sort of done on trust. So a beautiful way of international commerce without, commerce without all the... Um, well, you know. <laughs> and anyway, so no walls, no boundaries as such. And um, and it's a wonderful spot. It's total desert. It's one of the darkest places in the mainland US as far as lack of light pollution. So the stars are super bright. And there's various little campsites, but you can go if you're on a bike right off road on these little tracks. And there was this wonderful campsite. I think I've stayed there on three different years now. I could say a campsite. The only thing that depicts it as a campsite is a little wooden post in the ground that says the name of it and a circle of rocks, which is where you have to pitch your tent for some ridiculous reason. And the ranger will come along every three days saying, ah, you're not inside the rocks, boy. <laughs> so, yeah, sorry, I'm ruining the environment, aren't I? And, uh, but anyway, and it's stunning. There is, it's utter science. You take off your helmet. And all you hear is the clicking of your bike cooling down and and, and the, the blood running through the vessels in your ears. It is utter silence. And I love it. You just immediately slow your pace of life. You drop it down so many gears. And I love to wander around. It, there, once upon a time, they did tin mining there. And you can find traces of what the miners had left behind. But it's not really done in like a... A discarded rubbish way it's more in a sort of looking at modern history way and the sunrises are spectacular from a 
dark, dark sky and every colour of the spectrum getting lighter as it comes over the dawn and, the, and lights up these red rocks of the mountain range that's within the park. And the same with the sunsets and these really sort of hardy plants, cactuses and strange desert fauna. And, uh, and it's just a place for catching your breath, slowing down your life and really appreciating nature. And, and I was sitting there writing my diary once and I heard this like... And it was just a bird flying over my head, but with no other noise pollution. The wind going through the feathers of its wings was just incredible. So a wonderful environment at any time of, of the obviously quite hostile and hard to live in the middle of the summer. But for me, uh, I mean, a, and, and I don't think, I think if you were to go with someone else, you wouldn't get it because you would inevitably have conversation. But because I'm just on my own, don't talk to myself that much. I've heard most of it before. I just have utter silence. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And for me, it's a great way of ignoring Christmas. And again, I won't go into why I don't like it, but a great way of ignoring it and just and just being in this wonderful solitude that could be any time of year and any year of the, of the calendar because nothing has changed. There is nothing man-made anywhere to be seen. There was one light, which was a bit annoying, but it was about 20 miles away. But other than that, nothing. So, yeah, that was a, a wonderful Christmas I spent. Wow, that um, that set a pretty high bar there. You know, you should write a book. That was a beautiful uh, yeah. description. Oh, I was just reading it, actually, out of my book, Different Natures, available on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the age of cheese here. <laughs> that was beautiful. Wow, it makes me want to go for sure. That, that was really good. We're going to come back to you because you have another story, right? I do. Oh, I might play my ace too high, though. Yeah, that was, that was, that's really good. Sam, how about you? Well, when Graham suggested this idea... <laughs> no, you know, I think we owe the listener an explanation, because I'm not sure if they're going to pick this up from all of our sarcasm here. Graham came up with the idea, and Sam stole it. Sam, go ahead. <laughs> well, I'm going to steal it big time now. <laughs> No, actually, um, when 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 the idea came up about talking about um, Christmases that we spent on the road and so on, and I think Graham's comment was, and I don't mean Granny's house, which I thought was just brilliant. Um, the first thought that popped into my mind actually was that there is no best place to spend Christmas than with with family. But of course, when you're on the road, that's not so easy. But the people that family tend to be the people that you meet on the road, and it just set me thinking about the different Christmases, you know. And, and how different they can be according to the different parts of the world that you're in. God, that was bad grammar, different three times in the same sentence. But anyway, moving rapidly on. Um, I mean, it's Australia um, in Bronte Bay and just roast dinner on the beach and just completely perverse Christmas cards with snow on and Christmas decorations and air conditioning to provide the chill. Um, I never remember, forget laughing at a, a very sweaty looking Santa as he's handing out presents to, to the kids um, with his full Santa outfit on. At Cape Town, um, Christmas with Lee and Tony when I was recovering from 17 bone fractures and I was supposed to be in Durban and family and so on had sent out Christmas parcels to me, most of which included chocolate for some reason. And by the time I actually get, got them, there was sort of melted sludge in the Durban post office about two months later. Um, India, um, Rajasthan, fixing motorcycles on Christmas Day. What a brilliant th way to spend the day. Um, Buenos Aires, on a campsite in a really poor part of the city. And we'd been guided there by the bombarderos or fire, firemen. 
um, and it was cold, and the, but the mosquitoes were out. And um, our neighbours introduced us to the asado, um, which is the um, Argentinian barbecue, and what that, another brilliant way to spend Christmas. Um, and Anacortes um, on Fidalgo Island in um, Washington State. Um, we'd been loaned a three-berth camper, no heating, but it was warmer than our tent and there was plenty of room to move around. And uh, what made me laugh was that almost everybody's house had a, um, a Father Christmas doing a burglar impersonation up the side of it. But what a happy atmosphere there was. And I think my favourite of um, the Christmases was... Um, in Panama City was Birgit, and we'd just flown our bikes from Bogota in Colombia into Panama. And we'd never flown the bikes before because it had just seemed expensive and there were other ways to do it. But this short hop seemed to be a really good way to have the experience without too much cost. And we learned loads from, from doing this. Um, but my bike arrived with um, damage, unfortunately. But the workers at the airport started Christmas off with real Christmas spirit by deciding that they were going to help out and they sort of scrambled around and they got their welding kit out and welded my bike for me at the airport itself. Um, and I just couldn't be asked to play, play the, um, the blame game once that had happened. Now, the paperwork coming out of the airport was incredibly easy um, and that was a real eye-opener having shipped the bikes all of the time before. Um, but we had problems with both bikes we discovered on the way into Panama City. Fortunately, it was raining so that um, it uh, was a little bit cool. And somebody had said to us, follow um, the Tokamon bus into Panama City from the airport. And these buses are um, old American school buses, but they've been wildly painted with pop stars and all sorts of things. Um, absolutely phenomenal. But they act as um, a traffic plough. Um, so you just sit behind one of these and so long as it's going roughly in the right direction, these things clear all of the traffic out of the way for you, which is just such a brilliant thing in um, Panama traffic because it's a, it's, a, it's a monster. Um, but uh, we were heading for the old part of Panama City. Um, and looking for somewhere that was called um, the Hotel Central. At, at one time, this hotel had been um, the, the poshest, most important hotel in Panama City. But um, as the new part of the city had been developed, really glitzy and um, skyscrapers and all of this sort of stuff, the old part of the city had been, become pretty much neglected and the importance of this hotel had absolutely waned. Um, which was perfect for overlanders. And it was perfect for us because we had the problems with the bikes. But this place had the palm court inside and you could park your motorcycle inside. And we thought, well, you know, just raining, um, brilliant. We're indoors and we're out of the rain, plenty of place to work. We got lost all the time in the last bit. The, the one-way system through the old city was just horrible. We could actually see where we wanted to go to, and Birgit was getting really frustrated. And uh, she saw a policeman um, standing by the side of the, the, the street, and she screeched to a halt in front of him. Um, and bless her, in really good Spanish, she demanded to be shown the way to go. And the policeman just waved her up the wrong way, one-way street, and said, you can go that way. Perfect. We were there about five minutes later. Hmm. But um, Christmas got even better then because when we booked in, we were given um, room number one. And this was on the first floor, um, on the corner, um, balcony um, wrapping itself around the corner. And we were looking out onto the plaza. And on, on the other side of the plaza um, was the cathedral. 
Um, and there was a sort of um, collection of palm trees and cobblestones and all of this sort of stuff. And, and we, we spent hours sitting up on this balcony just watching um, life go on below us. The bath in this room was absolutely huge. I'd never seen a bath as big as this. You could almost get a whole family in it, we reckoned. But there was only cold water. We didn't care because, you know, um, it was we had everything else. Um, but one of the things that we liked about this area, I guess, was how how cheap the food was. You could get a full meal for a dollar um, in um, a sort of cellar-like restaurant with um, all of the locals and so on. Um, of course, you paid 80 cents more if you wanted to have meat. But um, rice and noodles and vegetables and all of that sort of stuff, that was absolutely fine. Now, this whole area was surrounded by um, narrow cobblestone streets. And as you're walking along, you could see where people's washing was hung out between the houses. Just on the corner by the hotel was a shop which sold ice-cold Balboa beer. And, well, um, I, we didn't drink that much beer, but, hey, well, it was Christmas, so, of course, we were going to treat ourselves regularly. But the real treat came from my sister back in the UK, and this is where the family connection fits in. Now, Avon Tyres had sponsored us, and my sister Rachel was storing them in her house in Cornwall, and she was sending them out with DHL. Um, but she always stuffed the tyres with chocolates and bags of Marks and Spencer's chewy mints and packets of chocolate drink powder and things like this. Now, I'll never forget getting the, the, the spare tyres and opening them up, sitting on our bed, um, opening the best Christmas presents out. Of course, the chocolate bars had melted again, but that was all right because we had the bath. We just filled that with water and floated chocolate submarine toys until they firmed up enough. Um, but, you know, I really, really like Christmas in Spanish-speaking countries. The pageantry is just full on there and people enter into it with great enthusiasm and the families get out in the streets together. And, um, and in Panama, there's a huge street parade with floats and bands and foods and, and everything else. Just hundreds and hundreds of people out lining the streets um, to, to watch this. And of course, wherever we went um, in Latin American countries, people loved fireworks. And well, in a city, they tend to be dangerous, particularly in the old part of the city with all those narrow cobbled alleyways and so on. They didn't shoot the fireworks, the rockets into the sky. They shot them down the streets. And these things just ricocheted from one side of the street to the other. Um, from our balcony, it was brilliant. But actually down on the street, it was probably dangerous. But I think, you know, the most special thing was sitting on our balcony and watching all of the families arriving, um, all dressed up in their finest clothes and heading into the cathedral for the service and hearing the Christmas music coming out of um, the cathedral itself. You know, it was one of those on the road, pinch yourself moments. Yes, this was us. This was us seeing this and experiencing um, this whole thing. Just, um, yeah, a real joy of travel. Do you find you miss Christmas from home when you're out somewhere else and you're having Christmas? I mean, do you get that nostalgia feeling? Um, the nostalgia comes because family is always very important to me and I miss my family when I'm traveling. Um, they're a good bunch um, and we all get on and we have a lot of laughs together. 
um, and normally everybody tries to get together for Christmas. So it does feel quite odd when I'm the only one that's not there, or now it's me and Birgit that we're the only one that aren't there. But actually what we do nowadays is that um, we tend to go over to Germany and spend Christmas with um, Birgit's family. So from my point of view, I still get the traveling in and I get the family. Grant. Grant? What happened to Grant? Yeah, I think I was saying Grant to sleep. Grant was no, muting. I was listening to Sam's mellifluous voice just flowing along. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, it was I'm a lovely so description. You weren't sorry, hard. Grant. No, I wasn't. Hey, I got my mute button on. I'm not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a great story. Um, ours is quite different in a way, I guess. We'd spent... The one, I'm, the one episode I'm thinking of, one Christmas that was really special to us in a way, was in Ushuaia, Argentina. And we'd spent the previous year traveling through Africa, um, being hot all the time and sweaty. And, uh, it was a very different feeling to arriving in South America. Africa was wonderful and we loved it and we, we can't wait to go back. We've been back two or three times since. But uh, we'd like to spend more time there. But coming to South America was a real change for us. After that year in Africa where we had not seen a single other traveler. Remember, this was 1997 now. And at that time, there was no Internet to speak of. And trying to meet up with somebody else or looking to meet up with another traveler was impossible. You just had no idea. You mean, you could be one day apart following each other through Africa and you wouldn't even know it. So we were, I don't know, alone in a way. It was great to talk to the local people and meet them and some really wonderful experiences and, and close experiences with the people there. But it wasn't Christmas. And when we got to Ushuaia, all of a sudden, there were other travelers. And it was Christmas. And this was, this was a Christmas present in itself. There was other people that understood what we were doing and we're doing the same thing. And that was a real, oh, wow, there are actually other people doing this. We didn't, we, we felt up to that point that we were really alone. There's nobody doing this, but turns out there are. And we met them all in Ushuaia at Christmas. When we got there, we just pulled into town and looking around and checked out the campsite and what there was and saw some other motorcycles and a couple of four by fours. And we saw a Canadian license plate and a German plate and Oh, this is interesting. So that was that was a a real strong. Oh, things have changed. It's a different. It's a different time. It's a different place. There are others out there doing this, and we sort of felt like, oh, all of a sudden we're part of other people and part of a community of people that's doing this stuff, not just on our own. And that was a real revelation for us that we weren't alone. So that was a, a very cool feeling. Um, if you've never been to Ushuaia, you want to be there at Christmas. That's a, a great time. Everybody in southern half of South America seems to say, well, might as well be at the bottom end for Christmas. And that's what was happening there. We had, uh, I think it was about 20 travelers there that year. And I understand now that there's three and four times that many. So it must be quite a party because it was a pretty good party when we were there. Uh, we met a bunch of people. Uh, a Canadian was there. And we met an American. Greg Frazier was there. Um, all kinds of people. And we had a really good time. 
There was people camping. There were people in bed and breakfasts. We finally decided, yeah, forget this camping stuff. We're going to have a bed and breakfast for, for Christmas. So we found this little tiny place owned by this wonderful Spanish couple. They were really just the sweetest people you could imagine. They couldn't do enough for us. Anything we wanted, yep, here you go. And it was dirt cheap. Hey, this is great. So um, on Christmas, we invited several of the people that we'd gotten to know fairly well to our bed and breakfast for Christmas dinner. And trying to find a turkey and doing it up proper, that just wasn't going to happen. So we ended up doing hamburgers because that was in the budget. (laughs) And we could get hamburgers, meat and buns and everything else. And Susan outdid herself and did absolutely amazing, spectacular hamburgers. In fact, one of the guys that uh, joined us was a vegetarian. He said, I haven't eaten meat in years. But yes, I'll have one of those. <laughs> You've ruined him. <laughs> <laughs> I ruined him. Yes, or Susan ruined him. Yeah, no, it was spectacular. So, And we still get reminders from Greg Frazier, who was one of the guys that were there. Every once in a while, every Christmas, he says, yep, I still remember the hamburgers in Ushuaia. Grant, was everybody camping down at the rugby club back then? Um, No, there was a campground. Um, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, there was just a regular provincial campground. where there's a a ski slope or something similar coming down towards it. Yes, yes, I know. We were having discussions about could we ride a bike up that ski hill? Mm. (laughs) Yep, yep. (laughs) One guy tried. Bad idea. He crashed his 1100 GS about halfway up, good and hard, busted a foot peg. Oh. <laughs> so it could be done, partly. Uh, but anyway, we had, we had a really good time with that. That was a, a wonderful experience. And we gave ourselves a fantastic Christmas present as well. We discovered, being in Ushuaia, which is the jumping off point to Antarctica, that there were several boats in the harbor that had room for more people. They'd had some cancellations. There was a financial crisis of some kind in Japan and a whole bunch of Japanese had canceled their bookings and all of a sudden we could get a trip to Antarctica for half price. Hmm. That was a hard one because we were actually into our credit cards at that point. We were out of money. We were broke. We got to get home. We're at the bottom of Ushuaia, Argentina. It's a long way home to Canada. But hey, it's Antarctica. What else are you going to do with credit cards? That's what they're for, right? That's exactly what they're for, Grant. I, I, exactly. I don't know if I agree with that philosophy, but, but in any case, because I can just imagine the, the paying the credit cards with other credit cards every month, um, one of those scenarios that you get into. But but that's aside. I was going to mention, though, about the internet. It's funny because you mentioned about it being, you know, you sort of stumbled into everybody there in Ushuaia. And um, I wonder if you get that same feeling. I'm sure to be amazing anyway, because, you know, you connect to the internet, and you know, everybody's there. But I wonder if some of the magic was the fact that you actually stumbled into everybody. Definitely. That was part of it. It was a real surprise to us because there was like literally nobody out there. We actually had run into Greg Frazier at Rio Gallegos, which is a few days from Ushuaia. And he was the first other motorcycle traveler that we had ever met in all of our travels from 87 to 97. Oh, wow. So, so that was a real, oh, wow. <laughs> so oh, there think- is one other guy. Greg Fraser must have been living in South America at that time, Grant, because Birgit and I met him there the year before, um, also in about the same area. And did Greg feed you um, his um, emergency food, um, plastic um, Ziploc bags full of cubed luncheon meat and olives? No, he didn't. Um, that, that was his emergency food along with um, some absolutely potent vodka. Um, and when that we met him, me. yeah, well, quite exactly. It's Greg. Um, 
that uh, within about, I don't know, 10 minutes of, of meeting Craig, he'd um, proposed marriage to Birgit. <laughs> Wise man. <laughs> His ears will be burning right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's powerful vodka. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that would be Greg. Just before no, it was, uh, we we love that, and that's um, an adventure that really stays with us. Partially because after that we went to Antarctica, which was an amazing experience. And if anybody's debating whether to spend the money to go to Antarctica, if you have the opportunity, trust me, just go. Absolutely, money is irrelevant go. later, but you'll never forget Antarctica. It's amazing. Grant, I've just realised something, Ooh. and that is Greg was on his way up from Ushuaia. And we were on our way down because we'd got delayed in Buenos Aires with Birgit Spike having some problems. And we had aimed to be in Ushuaia for Christmas. Um, and we, by the time we got down there, everybody had actually gone. We arrived, I don't know, two or three days after after New Year's. I'm wondering whether it was actually the same year. Well, that wow. was Christmas of 97. It may well have been. I have to have to look at my journal. I don't remember. Yes, but my it. goodness. Wow. It was Christmas but, 97. What you were saying about nobody knowing anybody else. I mean, we hadn't seen anybody else until we'd met Greg. And, um, yeah, we sort of were aiming for Ushuaia for Christmas because we'd sort of roughly heard on the grapevine that um, overlanders might be going to get there. But it was a real rough sort of um, thing. Um, so it's really nice that it actually um, did all happen down there. That must have been fantastic. Oh, yeah, it was. And the other special thing about that, which makes it even more memorable for us was that was when Horizons Unlimited went online. Uh, that was the start of it. Christmas in Ushuaia. I think we, we actually went live Christmas Day in Ushuaia wow. in 1997. We so, Grant, in just, just a few weeks' time, you've got a major anniversary happening then. Oh, yes. 30 years. Yeah, wow. 30 years since we left and 20 years of Horizons Unlimited, yes. Yeah. It's a big deal, wow. big day. Very cool. We're not yeah. quite sure what to do about it. Party. Suggestions appreciated, but yes, it'll be a party for sure. Surely. So, uh, do you guys have stories individually, or are you guys going to tell one together? Oh, we, well, we've, we've got, got three. Um, yeah, so we can three. split them up. But uh, eye bags go Ushuaia. I'll, I'll, fill in the gaps. I'll, I'll fill in the gaps in this then. Oh, okay. The ones I don't remember, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a, that's a distinct possibility. <laughs> no, that's probably more New Year's, yeah. New Year's Eve in Ushuaia was more the problem than Christmas. But we had Christmas in Ushuaia. Um, we met up with some friends, Bant and Heidi, who we'd met in Iran about eight years earlier, and we'd organised to meet them in Ushuaia for Christmas. We did the Antarctica thing prior to that and arrived back in Ushuaia on the 22nd of December. We went to the campground that um, Grant met his travellers at the bottom of the ski run and unlike uh, Sam, we didn't have a religious experience. We decked one of the trees with empty beer cans mm -hmm. and stars made from um, metal coat hangers that Brian and I had borrowed from the hotel we were staying in and uh, we filled our panniers up with ice to act as eskies and we had an asado and there would have been about 15 or 20 of us, I guess, and it was one of the best Christmases. We just had so many laughs and uh, it was really good to be with like-minded people on such a day when we were all away, a long way from our homes and uh, it was just one of the best experiences we've had and that was our 
that was our second Christmas away from home, but uh, it was um, it was a really special one, made special by the people we were with. Well, yeah, that's right. But we arranged to meet uh, Bert and Heidi, our dear friends that we'd met in in uh, Aram, there for Christmas. So they rode across Russia to Vladivostok, then shipped their bike to Japan, then shipped their bike to bikes to South America to come down to meet us for Christmas in Ushuaia while we did the um, crossing the Andes and all the rest of it. So it was a great experience to see them after so many years. Uh, I think we we had Christmas with them. Uh, no, we didn't have Christmas with them, surely, but they were pretty close to us in 2003 and then 2011 um, in Ushuaia, which was great. But I, I think the whole um, Christmas experience down there is just wonderful and it's the new year as well. I think... Um, we had, uh, what's that hot red wine they put on, Shirley, that uh, everyone just dunked their glasses in? Mold um, wine, and it was um, it was wine, potent. that's right. Yeah, I had to strap you on the back of the bike for a minute. He did. Uh, <laughs> and when we got back to our hotel, he very wisely talked me out of joining the party that was in the foyer oh, the of our second hotel. Party you wanted to, second party you and wanted to And then go, he though. very wisely stopped me from Skyping Australia. <laughs> They yeah. were all very, very good moves on his part. Yeah, oh, yeah but there, was, a, there was another Aussie there too who was um, – his uh, party trick is to climb lampposts. So he, <laughs> in the in the campground there was a, a, a post. And um, oh, what was his name, Shirley? He tried to climb Owen. the post. Owen. that's right. <laughs> and, um, yeah, he didn't surface out of his tent until about 5 o'clock the next uh, afternoon. But uh, – <laughs> Yeah, it was good fun. And I think he actually slept under a table uh, in the campground. In the night. kitchen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, it was it was great. It's a great experience, um, and that was a that was a, a really good one. But the first one, remember that one in India? Oh Can yeah, start that one, sure. You go well, there's one. two two components to that one. Um, we became the entertainment at uh, in Goa at Christmas that year because we went to one of those phone booths to ring home where it clicks over how many rupees you've spent for the time that you're on the phone. And we ended up with about 40 people standing outside the phone booth because they'd never seen anyone spend that many rupees on a phone call before. <laughs> I mean, they were used to like three rupees and we spent, I don't know, heaps ringing Australia. So they were very entertained by that aspect. But we also met the Black Santa, which I've got to tell you was really creepy. Yeah, that's yep. Santa Claus is in the traditional Santa Claus um, costume, but he wears a face mask, which yeah. is a black face. But it's um, like a horror mask. It's, it's it scary. Was, it's it's absolutely really scary. creepy. Kids, kids run away. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> the Antichristmas. <laughs> yeah. um, look, yeah, it was uh, it was something else. But also at that time, I remember there was a, an English couple that we met in this little cheap hotel. We were staying in on the other side of the river. There was a really expensive hotel, and the really expensive hotel had fireworks going off. So our uh, good English friend decided to go into town and buy fireworks. So he set up another fireworks display from our little shitty place on the other side of the, the river. So we had a competition. And I think we won. Didn't of we? Of course we won. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the great thing about being the teller of the story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. People at the expensive hotel probably thought theirs was good, but we had a good time at ours. 
And the only yeah. other Christmas that we spent away from home, we were in South Africa and we palled up with an Australian there and decided that, you know, rather than trying to do the lunch thing, we'd just go for a ride to the Cape of Good Hope thinking no one will be there on Christmas Day. I think everyone was there. I don't yeah, think was, anyone was celebrating was, Christmas at their home. The only advantage was we were on the bikes, so they let us ride up past all the cars and the buses and up to the top car park, and we had the most wonderful day wandering around looking at the ocean and uh, taking photos and and celebrating Christmas in a very different way with, you know, 4,000 of our closest friends. <laughs> yeah, so Christmas can be a lot of things to different people. You know, we, we enjoyed the company and the friendship that we, we got on, on Every place that we've had Christmas, and and Graham enjoyed his uh, with his bird and uh, stars <laughs> in in Big Ben National Park, which we've been to, which is just wonderful, mate. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, to to finish this storytelling of Christmas off, Graham has another one. Oh, I do. Um, so another Christmas, I'd already been in Big Bend, and so and I crossed over into Mexico. Um, before Christmas, because I'd been in Big Ben prior to that. And I decided I was going to ride the Devil's Backbone, which is a road in um, Lucky Cats. You let them in and then they piss all over your story. Hang on a minute. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're hearing. We're hearing the cat door. <laughs> and the cat's coming in or are they clawing to get in? Oh. He's locked them out in the cold. <laughs> The thing is, it's cold out, so I don't go outside and play, so I don't even have it in here. Should we start it again? Well, well yeah, but I'm curious now. Were, were the cats trying to get in through the cat door, or they claw on the door? No, the thing is, in the winter, in the summer, the doors are open all the time. They have free access around the house. But now it's winter, and I've got the log burner on. The door's closed, and so they want in, they want out, they want in, they want out. And now they're both in, and they're fighting, and, uh, and I've got well, this you know really... what they say, Graham? Dogs have owners, cats have slaves. They do. They do. That, that's what drives me nuts with cats. I, I mean, I remember our cat would claw to go outside, and, and I would just say, ignore it, ignore it. But it just keeps getting louder, and then it claws, and then it actually starts knocking things over. And then you put it out, and it claws the door to come back in. But if you ignore it, it climbs up the screen. And if you, it just gets worse and worse. It's like you actually have to do what the cat wants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've got a wife like that. <laughs> Do you know, Edit can I just 42. throw in here? <laughs> How much is you apart? <laughs> the first person we met at the Sydney Motorcycle Show who um, was an Adventure Rider Radio Raw listener stood behind me and said, I'd recognise that voice anywhere, which I thought was rather nice. And then his next comment was, I'm just waiting for when you really do hit Brian. <laughs> Talking of Adventure Rider Radio Raw listeners and shows, um, Graham and I were just at um, Motorcycle Live in the UK. It's the, the UK's biggest motorcycle show. And I was blown away by the number of people that listened to Adventure Rider Radio and Adventure Rider Radio Raw that came to say hello. Oh, um, at least the they're not coming up getting with pies or anything and throwing them at you. No, not at all. I tell you what, oh, people one, are just one guy full of who was actually called Guy actually came up with pies, not to throw, but to give. <laughs> really? Oh, nice. Yeah. Nobody brings me a pie. How come I don't get a pie? <laughs> <laughs> but Graham, your kitties, your kitties are in, and you were starting to tell us a story. Oh yeah, Christmas. Right. So, 
I'd already been in Big Bend and I travelled into Mexico and it was Christmas Eve and I was in a place called Durango, which is very high altitude in this high spine of central Mexico. And I was going to ride the devil's backbone. I think in, in Spanish it's called uh, Espiano del Diablo. And I'd filled up with petrol that evening. And I said in my best Spanish to the guy at the Pemex station, will the petrol stations be open tomorrow? Because I'm not, even though I'm going downhill, I'm not gonna have enough to get through. And I'm pretty sure he said yes. It was either that or no, but anyway. Um, so I, I stayed night in hotel, got up before it was even light. And uh, because of the time difference, Skype me mom, happy Christmas, da da da. And then got me by just as it was getting light. And there's ice on the puddles, freezing bloody cold. And I rode one of those roads that rates in the world's most dangerous roads thing. And um, it was spectacular. Now, also, they have quite recently built a toll road. So all the trucks, not there's a hell of a lot of them on Christmas Day. And the busy traffic takes the toll road, which spans gorges and tunnels through mountains. And I get to use the original road on Christmas Day, which no one else is using, of bend after bend. And it ain't just a wonderful bendy road. It slowly drops down to the coast in a place called uh, Mazalan. And so slowly your layers come off and you warm up on those rare riding occasions when your numb fingers and your cold toes actually start to get warmer. Not because you've got off and gone in by the fire, but because you're dropping the altitude and the temperature is warming up. And there was one point in particular where I was getting uncomfortably hot, stopped to take linings out of jackets and thermals off and stuff. And when I stopped from this bleak, dead grey of the high altitude where I'd started. It was now this green, buzzing, lively environment. And there were crickets chirping and all these wildlife. And you take off your hand, there's just all this noise. And you're getting bitten by mosquitoes all of a sudden, which for a few seconds is actually an enjoyment because you're back where there's life. And just take off your scarf, put on a bandana, take off your big thick gloves, put on fingerless one, take out your liners, open your vents and then continue a ride down this wonderful, empty, uninhabited, twisty road all the way down the coast. And the Pemex, the petrol stations were open and uh, filled up again and kept riding all the way down the coast. Spectacular way to spend Christmas. Again, absolutely oblivious to what the day is, but no one around. One of the best roads, nobody on it. And then when you fill up your tank again, you know the day is not over. I can keep on going. So, yeah, that was another spectacular way to spend a Christmas day. That sounds really neat. I was curious about the fingerless gloves, though. Oh, I love riding in fingerless gloves. What does that um, do for you? It's a Well, it's a bit like it's very good when a car driver pisses you off. You've got far more <laughs> dexterity. But um, For communication, I get it. It's got loads of it. It's a bit like people who ride a convertible car have the heater on it's a similar thing even when it's cold with fingerless gloves you get the heat of the you know, heated grips all the more because it's not through the padding of a, of a winter glove and because uh i was thinking about writing a book like you said i have this um voice recorder in my tank bag and so i can pull out my voice recorder and speak into that whatever my thoughts happen to be and just the dexterity of, of having your fingers, I think you, you just, it's a bit like, you know, taking away your windscreen from a car and having a helmet so you, you sense all the more. Not having your fingers sort of 
shrouded in big thick Gore-Tex, you just feel everything a little bit more. You, you, your sense of touch and feel comes from mostly from your fingers. And I just think you're more aware of everything. So I'm, I'm a big advocate of fingerless gloves. And, uh, and also, whenever it's a fingerless glove day, it's a day where the temperature is the right side of comfortable. So that's always a good thing. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. I, I haven't tried those. Um, so we get some listener questions here. Um, we, have, um, we have one from Brittany Sheed. Brittany says she's got a, a few newbie questions. She got her license uh, this fall, and so far she's been searching for a good starter bike. Now, that's important. She says she's 120 pounds, she's five foot two, and she needs a good bike to practice on as well. And she's sort of looking for recommendations to practice, uh, places to practice as well. Um, what, do, what do you guys think? For you have any recommendations for bike? I know what pops into my mind. Tell us, yeah, well. Well, I was just going to say the, the Yamaha XD250 or 225s. It seems like a, a perfect setup for that. Yeah, it's a good size for starter bikes. I mean, a lot of people think you need a 650 or something as a small bike, but 225, 250, that's, that's plenty big bikes. When I first started riding, that was actually considered to be a fairly good-sized bike. Most of my friends had, well, one had a, a 50cc or 55cc. He was very proud. He had a 55, not a 50. Another guy had a couple of one twenty was a couple of one twenty fives and one sixties, and I had the big bike, the two fifty. So yeah, small yeah, look, bikes are fine. I I, I think um, you got to get a bike that one can keep up with the traffic. Yep. And there's a there's a plethora of them out there now um, of three hundred cc capacity. Uh, Kawasaki, Yamaha, Honda, BMW, they all make the three hundred cc capacity mainly for the Asian market, and they're pretty low stature bikes. And they're very, very capable. Like Grant, I, my first road bike was a 350 twin Honda, and that was a very capable bike. I could do, should I say this? Oh, yes, that's just limitations. is over 105 mile an hour, being uh, slipstreaming a 750 Honda, no problem. But you know, they're quite capable of doing uh, those sorts of speeds, and they're very nimble. And I know, notice she talks about practising in car parking lot. Well, that's all right for bike control, but you really do need to get out in the traffic and, and um, don't don't choose a busy day or anything like that, but uh, choose a, a quiet day to learn how to um, position yourself on the road, traffic-wise and all the rest of it. That's very, very important for um, survival on the roads. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the empty parking lot to start with to really get comfortable so that you really are able to make a maneuver in traffic when you need to. Too often, the car will cut you off or do something stupid. And if you're not really comfortable with the bike, often I've seen people hit the front brake at the wrong moment and they're in trouble, they fall down, or they're trying to, they should dodge instead of hitting the brakes and they're not comfortable with a quick dodge. Uh, there's lots of reasons for spending a lot of time in the parking lot. I mean, I still, after 50 years of riding, still go out to the parking lot every year and spend a couple of hours refreshing myself to make sure that I've got that, that I'm really comfortable every spring, making sure I know what I'm doing. That makes a huge amount of sense. Um, oh. Brittany, um, uh, my partner, Birgit, she's only five foot one. And um, we had a real hunt around to get a bike that she could get um, the balls of her feet on the ground with. 
and give her a, um, a comfortable handlebar reach. I mean, you can move the handlebars and you can change the position of them and so on. And she ended up on a, um, a 650 BMW because we were actually looking for a bike that had the same sort of mechanical engineering or similar um, to mine um, for her to travel on. Um, but actually, she would have been much better off with something around the 300 cc range. Um, again, so that she, could, so long as she could get um, the balls of her feet comfortably on the ground. And she'd only been riding a motorcycle for 600 miles when we started riding to Kenya and a, um, together in, in Kenya. And a huge number of those were spent on a large car park. And we collected um, milk bottles, you know, sort of two litre milk bottles filled them with water and we placed them out in figure of eights and slaloms and all sorts of things. And she spent hours going around these things with the cones spread out quite a, a good distance to begin with. And then as she got more comfortable with that distance, just sort of slowly moving them in. And she did them um, going round in one way and then turning round to go round in the opposite direction. So she was practicing both lefts and rights. Um, and she did it um, sitting down to begin with until she was comfortable doing that. And then she started doing it standing up. And I know, uh, well, I have no doubt in my mind that then suddenly dealing with Kenyan traffic, the reason that she was able to do that was she, because she'd spent so many hours um, without hassle, without interruptions, just being able to focus on learning what her bike would do, what she could make it do, um, balance and clutch control um, and stopping distances. Um, so, yeah, I would be a strong advocate. But, um, yeah, absolutely. There's nothing better than on-road experience to top all of that off. But, um, as Brian said, don't head out into the busy stuff unless you absolutely have to. I did meet a girl in, in Delhi, and she'd passed her bike test in Delhi um, traffic. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to do that either. <laughs> that would be ugly. Birgit was on an yeah. R60, wasn't she, Sam? She was on an R60 um, slash 5, that's right. Although, um, yeah, bless her, because she didn't want um, to be a hold-up to me, and mine was an 800cc bike, she changed the cylinders to a, an 800cc. So um, uh -huh. everything was based on the 650, on the 600, um, yeah. but uh, with the 800 cylinders. Yeah, um, that was a big move career. for her. Um, yeah. she, we had to, we had to take nearly all of the padding out of the foam, and um, you know, she must have every time she got off for the first half an hour or so had a grid pattern on her backside. Very plucky, <laughs> very plucky lass. Yeah, a friend of ours is um, is about five feet tall, and she's now ridden most of the way around the world. And she started off with an F six fifty that was lowered so low that on the topes in Mexico, she was having severe issues, literally got stopped on one. Wow. Um, but she's now raised it back up quite a bit. It's not all the way to the top. She'll never be able to do that. Just too short. But she did lower it down a lot and said felt very comfortable. And over the years, she's raised it up a couple of times since then. So starting off low is you, know, you have to do what it, whatever is necessary to feel comfortable. And when you're beginning, lower the thing to the bottom. Like Sam said, you can take foam out of the seat and you can lower the suspension. There's all kinds of things you can do to make the bike really low and adjust the handlebars and tweak it to make you fit and then adjust as necessary as you get more comfortable. Uh, Brittany, if you're feeling really brave, um, have a look on YouTube. There's some footage of a, um, a guy. I, I, I can't remember how tall he is, but let's say he's, um, he's five foot two. Oh, I know. Um, do you know what I'm talking yeah, yeah, about? Yeah, he's on an R1200, yeah, isn't yeah, he? Yeah. 
That's it. Yeah, and yeah. you know, he's he's he he stops this thing and just climbs off it while the bikes. You know, it, it just yeah, yeah. It, it, it shows it's phenomenal you, you, watching this guy. Just because you're short doesn't mean that you can't ride a big bike. There was a girl that uh, rode in the Dakar who uh, started beside the bike and gets it rolling and then jumps on the bike and and go, and she I'm pretty sure she rode uh, a works BMW years ago in a Dakar. So okay. it's all about confidence and skill and all those sorts of things and you gain that by learning your bike control. But I, I still I'm a great advocate for you got to get out in the traffic and be comfortable riding your bike in traffic as well. Um, before, as, as Birgit did, you know, it's getting down and riding through Africa. But on the way down, I'm sure, Sam, that she got better and better at uh, anticipating and learning the skills of riding through the traffic as well. Without doubt. Um, it was it was really interesting exercise for me to watch. And there were some days where she suddenly leapt forward with her knowledge. You know, she tried something and it worked. And wow, um, it was it was good fun to watch. Um, yeah. I tell you what. By the time she, a year later, when we got down to the bottom of Africa, um, she was pretty much better at riding a motorcycle than I was. Really tenacious girl, determination, um, observation, and have a go. And, and for Brittany as well. I mean, lessons. I mean, even though you have your license, um, taking some lessons with somebody is a great way to really advance your skills quickly. Yeah, taking an yeah. off-road course is really important too. It makes a big difference. It steps up your ability to ride on the road, not just off-road. Even if you're not interested in riding um, off-road, an off-road course teaches you a lot about low-speed skills, which is what you need, especially when you're on the shorter side and you're riding a bigger bike in traffic. It makes a big difference having that extra level of skill. Um, I'm guessing the fact that she uses the term parking lots, that Brittany's Amer American. So I passed my bike test in America. And there was nothing to it. I think I had to ride in a straight line and stop between a couple of cones, and that was it. They gave me my license. Whereas in Europe, it is far more stringent, and you and you do pursuit riding, and uh, there is a lot more to it. So if perhaps that's the case, and she basically got given a license by turning up at the right time, then yeah, to do some uh, some actual proper instruction will make you far more confidence. Because I think having, having the confidence is the key, and. Uh, and also, as far as I'm not going to suggest bikes, that's always been gone through. But having a bike where you can get both feet flat on the ground really helps your confidence because you know that when you do start losing balance or go a little bit beyond your experience or your limits, when you can put a foot flat on the ground rather than just tiptoe try and balance yourself, I think it makes you feel far more confident and, and able to do things perhaps you wouldn't do because you know you've, you like you can you can balance yourself if you need to yeah it sort of takes away the stress of worrying about that about stopping among all the other things you have to worry about when you're learning to ride exactly now Birgit managed to get the ball of her feet down um, with hers but you know just parking on a slope for example because she couldn't get the flat of her feet on the ground that was an issue for her sometimes mm -hmm. um there were once, twice, you know, on occasions where I'd actually end up having to help her park a bike because there was just no way that she was going to cope with it. So, but, um, you know, um, it's it's what you end up doing. Um, but I think Graham's right. If you can get the flat of your feet on the ground, um, so much the better. I'll just throw in here at the end, Brittany, you have to remember that everybody who's riding, who's a, who's a good rider or a great rider, they've all started out exactly like you. Um, everybody who rides. So it's always something to keep in mind that you're not the only one starting out at ground zero. Yeah, go for it, Brittany. Get into it. Yeah, yeah. good on you.
in my first bike, I couldn't even start the thing. I had to kickstart it. And I couldn't do it. I had to be taught how to start it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, got, I've got one of those. I've got one of those. And I park it outside the pub and no one can start it. So I just leave the keys in it. So no one's feels it. <laughs> oh, that's going to bite you. That's going to get you one day. <laughs> yeah, I'll come along. Yeah. <laughs> now I know how. <laughs> Ah, uh, maybe. <laughs> G.J. Lyons is the name we've we've heard before, and this is I, I got to read his or quote from his from his letter here. Um, well, letter. It's an email, of course. Sorry for asking another question so soon after putting the question to this amazing crew on the last show, but I just got to know the answers. I need more info. Can you talk about what jobs people could get into if they want to support the adventure lifestyle? Other than writing a book, as I've heard Graham and, or Sam mention, he says, God knows there's enough adventure writers out there now. Who needs another one of those? So please let us know um, if you've heard of remote. Uh, I think there's something wrong here, but basically, anyway. I think he means intro type jobs, not into. Thank you. Yeah, intro jobs. So jobs that you can get, I guess, without being highly skilled. And we're back to that same question that comes up so much making money on the road. So we probably want to go through this fairly quickly because I know this can get really drawn out. I know, Sam, you had mentioned already uh, fruit picking as one thing, but do you guys have some specific things that that you would recommend that people look at if they're considering working on the road? Do not, not, whatever you do, write a book. There is no money in it. It will keep you off the road. Exactly. (laughs) I heard that authors get filthy rich from it and they always pretend they don't make any money. Has anyone else heard that? (laughs) No. Did did somebody say something about money then? (laughs) PJ, if you want to make money, do a radio podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Huge money. Huge money to be made. Sponsorships, donations. They get given stuff to test. It's the dream job. You You can be on the road. As long as you've got an internet connection, get some cool people. Don't pay them, but get them to contribute, and you will get it made. Hang on. I just have to interrupt. I'm going to have one of the servants come in and mop my brow. There, that's nice. Thank you. You can go now. I thought you were going to have a technical glitch then. Hang on a second. <laughs> yeah. DJ, I, I, think, I don't think you're right. I think that um, the world needs more um, well-edited travel writers, people who can write, because this world of ours is brilliant. And the more people that say it, the more people that balance out the scaremongering and so on. But Graham's absolutely right. You're not going to earn a lot of money while you're traveling um, by writing. And I wrote some magazine articles while, while we were traveling, and I earned enough money to buy more film for my camera. Um, that was it. Um, and that is the harsh reality. So find other ways to do it. You're definitely right to be looking in different directions. But there are so many things that you can do without a huge number of skills. But my top tip to you would be um, have a look around and see what skill you can gain before you go traveling that is something that you can use um, when you're actually traveling. Um, such as, you know, I don't know what your background is, TJ. What skills do you already have? Is there something that you already do that you could enhance and then sell yourself um, for um, while you're actually traveling? I mean, are you a hair um, dresser? Do you do carpentry? You know, all of those sorts of things. Um, if not, then learn a specific skill that you can use when you're actually out traveling. Um, But try not to make it something – I've changed my mind with nursing and engineering and things like that because since I said that on a previous show, I've done a lot more research and now it's so complicated to get jobs using those skills. It's all permits and 
the right type of visas and everything else. It's better to find yourself a practical skill that you can actually do while you're traveling, um, you know, like carpentry, for example. But also, you know, learn something like graphic design. There are organizations around that you can travel with IT-based skills and earn significant money. For example, there's a company called Upwork. You can look them up online, upwork.com. Um, and this is a place where you can register the skills that you have, um, the IT um, type skills that you have, um, and companies who want freelancers rather than to employ somebody on a permanent basis will go to this site and they'll pick people out and say, right, okay, um, we'd like you to come and do this work for us for a couple of months. And normally it's a job that you can be doing while you're actually traveling. You know, you might have to settle down in one place for two or three weeks because you've got significant focus to do, but hey, two or three weeks in one place is absolutely fine. So there are things like that around that you can do. But you can also do things like plasma donation. Um, that, that sort of stuff. Or you could be um, a Thank lab you. rat and earn a fast <laughs> buck with that. Oh, how about for someone a kidney sand? <laughs> I was just thinking, yeah, I think Sam's going a little far there. <laughs> Bloody but, hell. There, there are all sorts of things that you can actually do. Um, I mean, busking, do you play a musical instrument? I met a guy who was traveling around the world um, playing a saxophone. And this guy was one of the wealthiest um, backpackers that I'd ever come across. He could play. And wherever he felt in the mood or wherever he was at a place where he thought he could earn some money, he'd just stand there and play a saxophone with a hat on the floor. Mm. And no, I watched clothes, him, you know, no clothes because he's carrying a saxophone on his motorbike. But, you know. <laughs> well, why not? I've seen people carry guitars. Well, I mean, if it works for you, right? I, I was going to mention, though, Sam, you, you mentioned Upwork.com. There's also Fiverr.com. There's, there's a bunch of different things. And, and I just wanted to expand on, on what you were saying there as far as, you know, I mean, you could do writing, graphic design, web design. There's all kinds of things you could do if you have a skill that's applicable for online. I think that there's a lot of, a lot of opportunity, or at least the potential anyway, to, uh, to find some work doing stuff from your computer while you're traveling. Absolutely. But if you if, if you haven't got any skills, it's it's a little difficult. Now, I've got two that um, I, you know, some people know. My son runs a restaurant uh, down on the Great Ocean Road, and he's forever trying to find staff. Now, most of his staff are actually backpackers. You know, so you know, be able to work a restaurant or you know wait tables or be a barista. But there's also a thing in Australia where you can go to outback stations and work on outback stations and get board and um, food and uh, a, a payment as well for a month or so. And I can't remember the site. I don't know whether you do, Shirley, but um, I, we've, we've met uh, international travellers coming through the, the heart of Australia that drop off and go into stations and work there for a month or any of the um, uh, outback um, um wayside stops and service stations are always looking for staff and uh, the William Creek um, uh, station place has uh, is full of backpackers all the time and they work there for three weeks four weeks and move on to the north so you can do that throughout Australia and I can't see why you couldn't do that anywhere else in the world other than really really poor countries of course trying to work in, in countries that are, are really poor, like India, you're not going to do well. The local wage is, is so small. So you always yeah. want to work in a, in a fairly 
first world country. Um, we've just been putting together a meeting for um, Chile. And people think of South America as being poor, but Chile is not poor. The numbers and prices there are European. It's amazing. So you could work in Chile. And I know some people who did work in Chile um, working on a, on a wine farm. They were out there picking grapes and then they were crushing grapes and making wine. And uh, they did very, very well out of that. I think they had a six-month gig and they made enough to travel on for about three years. So you can do very well. And, and, don't and, and don't undersell your skills in languages either. Um, you know, no. uh, one of our friends, uh, she ended up in a, um, a snow resort in, um, far, uh, in Canada, wasn't it, Shirley? She stayed there because they had a lot of German visitors there and she spoke German. She's Austrian. And, uh, you know, th things like that can really get you, get you by. I th in fact, I think she's still there. <laughs> Canadian ski resorts are are mostly foreigners working there. It's, it's amazing to hear all sorts of accents. Graham, Graham, did you have something you want to throw in there? Oh, just briefly going back to the fruit picking. I did did it in uh, when I was in New Zealand, kiwi fruit picking. I think the best thing about doing fruit picking is whatever your job you end up doing for the rest of your life or during the rest of your life, it will never seem as bad as bloody fruit picking. <laughs> Amen. Here, here. It's They're done that. It's terrible. But it pays. Absolutely. I thoroughly enjoyed the experience, but my goodness, Graham, you're right. It's blooming hard work. So, oh. I, I, for example, going back to cherry tomatoes, I will never look at a cherry tomato on the dinner plate again without thinking, wow, somebody's worked like they're mad to get this onto my plate. Um, Brian, going back to your teach, teaching English business, um, that is absolutely a good one. I, I know so many people in so many different parts of the world that are doing that as they're traveling. A lot of them have got a TEFL qualification before they've headed out traveling. That's teaching yeah. English as a foreign language. Um, and that really gets um, gives them the opportunity to get plum jobs in countries where there's a very good chance of earning decent money um, rather than survival money. Um, so it's a TFL, uh, TEFL, yeah. teaching English as a foreign language. And it's, um, it's fairly intense, um, but it's well worth doing. So I was just going to say, coming from a, a tourism background, I think something that, that it often gets overlooked is the tourism market. With tourism, a lot of times you um, you tend to not hire the full staff you would need for a real busy season, and you get surprised. So it, it happens almost every season. As an operator, you're afraid to overhire because then it means that nobody's working enough, and then you get a bunch of unhappy employees. So what happens is the season starts, and pretty soon you're finding that you have a need for guides or helpers. So if you're the type of person that can learn fast, you could go to a guiding company, somebody who has a, any kind of tourism operation, and offer your skills maybe as a guide or even as prep crew or a driver. There's, there's so many positions available. And sometimes it'll only be part-time work, but there's a lot of benefits with it because it's a real busy atmosphere. You'll find that you'll get integrated with the staff very quickly and with the, uh, the local area. And you could end up getting a place to stay out of it. Like there's a lot of connections to be made. And I'm saying this because I've, I've seen it happen over and again. So that might be a, a good way or a good spot to look if you're traveling and you want to make some money. Jim, you hit a nail right on the head then, connections. Backpackers hostels um, are great places to hunt out jobs. Um, you know, I, 
go into a backpackers hostel and ask around does anybody know who's got some work going at the moment and you can pick up all sorts of different jobs or just put a sign up on the backpacker notice board I'm here for the next month or I can be here for the next month my skills are X, Y and Z is anybody looking for somebody to work um, and it's incredible how quickly um, jobs can come as a result of that um, the, the key is when you're asking around be positive be persistent and be the sort of person that you would like to be to work with. And if you come across in those sorts of ways, that really helps you find work because a lot of the employers, like Brian was saying with his son, they really struggle to get employees. Um, and if you're coming across as positive, persistent and a likable person, you, you, you can slot into jobs really quickly. Yeah, that's true. Can I just add a rider of caution? We've had a, an instance here in Australia uh, where companies go online looking for backpackers. They offer them accommodation at hostels in the country and then um, claim that they're going to have work at properties nearby that hostel. And there's been numerous occasions where these young people Maybe we'll get some work. It won't be a lot of work. It won't pay much and they end up getting racking up huge bills because they're staying in the one hostel for, you know, four or five weeks expecting to get work and not getting it. Um, so just, just be a little bit careful because there are people out there who will take advantage of people who are trying to, to make do and get by while they're, while they're travelling. Mm. That's, that's a really good point. Shirley, that's such a good um, warning. Um, I hear the stories um, a lot too. And it's it's the old common sense thing. If it sounds too good, then it may well be. But whatever yeah. you're doing, when you're on the road and you're doing odd jobbing and, and all of that sort of stuff, you are vulnerable. So keep your eyes and ears wide open and don't commit yourself to something that sounds even remotely dodgy or too shiny because the chances are there's something very odd going on. Yeah. That yep. gives a, a good list of things. I think we, we had a, some good ideas. I mean, there was other stuff that uh, spotted when I was looking around, um, diving instructors, which runs into tourism and, and translators and things like that. But uh, I think you can sort of let your imagination run with that. Um, last episode, Grant had put a, a question to their audience saying, you know, what holds you back? What stops you from going out? And and a good one that we got was from Daffod Jones. It says, in response to your question at the end of, oh, sorry, it was October podcast. Was it October? Yeah, I guess it was October. Um, you asked, what's stopping you, the listener, from going on a trip? And the reasons that this listener says is cost and a young family. And, and probably the big one is where to go that's not mega money. And they said that they, they thought Europe would be a good idea, maybe Germany or Switzerland, and they're looking for advice for someplace to go that isn't really expensive. Sounds no, like from his that, name that he's British. It, Daffod lives in, in the UK. Yeah. Mm. Jump on a plane, go to Vietnam, um, hire a bike, or buy one for $100, and uh, ride to your heart's content, and then go back home. Or even Spain or Morocco or Tunisia. Yeah. I don't know what Graham India. thinks about this, but um, how about just scooting across Western Europe as quickly as you can and spending your time in Eastern Europe? Is it well, still relatively cheap to travel in Eastern Europe, Graham? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's generally when, when people say, oh, I'm going to come out and see you. It's like my, for me, living in Bulgaria now, it, you know, the first time I came into the land of Cyrillic alphabet it was a huge adventure. Now it's just a commute. And um, 
I get a day ferry from the UK across to the Hook of Holland. I ride through Germany at night. By the time the sun comes up, I'm in Czech Republic and the prices have dropped tremendously. From that point on, you've got out of expensive Western Europe. You can, you can, you can slow the pace and enjoy a much cheaper way of life through Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, down to Bulgaria, and then fill up your tank in Bulgaria because it's bloody expensive in Turkey. And then, boom, off you go to Georgia or whatever. So, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, anywhere but Switzerland and Germany, I think, um, being two or of the more expensive countries in Europe. Norway, don't even think about. Um, prices are outrageous. But, uh, yeah, Western Europe is just so expensive. That's the last place. That was the biggest mistake we made on our world trip. We spent way too much time in Europe. If we'd spent half the time in Europe, we would have gotten a lot farther than we did. Without cracking those credit cards. Yes. You might have actually <laughs> come home with a couple of dollars left. Bloody instead hell. of being a few thousand in the hole. Yeah. No, Europe is just so expensive. Skip it as fast as you can. Another one of the responses we got um, is an anonymous, somebody who'd rather leave their, their name out of this, but they're from Denmark. He says, since discovering the adventure motorcycle community, he'd been dreaming about going on a longer trip, not necessarily around the world, but gradually building up experience. But a couple of years ago, his excuse, he said he uses the word excuse, was time and money. That was the problems why he didn't go. Um, but then an unfortunate thing happened. His wife had some medical complications and she's slowly recovering, but she, she can't, uh, can't live on her own, can't survive on her own, and she can't take care of her daughter. So um, he's, uh, he's wanting to do some adventure motorcycle trips, but he can't go now until his daughter's older. He's 40 years old. Yeah, that's really hard. I, you know, we, we, uh, at our Horizon speeding here in Jindabyne, we had a friend, uh, Andrew, whose who's wife is um, hugely... Um, debilitated at the moment and uh he's been looking after her for years and years hasn't he Shirley and yeah. you know he um he was able to organize a carer um for a week and he came down and he helped us at Horizons and then went for a ride with a friend before he went back and you, you could not get the smile up his face and he's a gorgeous man with a big heart and he's got a, a hell of a burden that he's dealt with for many, many years, but he loves his motorcycle riding and that's as best as he can do now. And uh, all his friends and all of us try and help him as much as we can. So uh, I sympathise, but, you know, there are ways that you can still put a smile on your face and sometimes you just have to limit what you're doing until you can go a little bit further. And perhaps another possibility, because living in Denmark, your neighbouring countries, Sweden, Norway, Finland, are all, again, very expensive countries. Possibility, maybe, is to have your bike transported somewhere to Eastern Europe again, where you can then meet it and ride around a much cheaper country and a completely different terrain environment and, uh, and either have it shipped back or leave it there and go meet it again next year. You're still within the European Union, so you don't have to worry too much about it being impounded because it's stayed over its sort of limited amount of time. So is that an option, maybe? Hmm. Hey, Graham will look after it for you. <laughs> yeah, I've got to be good. <laughs> I think sometimes you need to think outside the box and try and just do something a little different. And, and sometimes it's just a matter of, it's like I love to go for an evening ride. It's a cool summer evening. It's beautiful out. Just go out into some farmland and just ride for a couple of hours. That can make a big difference. And if you're not getting out very often, 
that can be as good as a week trip. It's just that get out and do something every once in a while. I think that's really important. Yeah, I did that just the other day. You know, went out for a ride into the forest and got lost on the on the TT six hundred and came back with a big smile on my face. Didn't I? Sure, loved it. Well, so you found your way home eventually. (laughs) Well, well, I was hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like one of Graham's cats. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like one of those moments where I should hit him. (laughs) (laughs) Just save that for when he comes home. You know, I think that when you've got a low budget, both time and financially, it's important to do two things. And one is work out what you really want to see. And two, once you've worked out what you really want to see, is plan not to travel too far. I mean, Graham's idea about shipping your bike to an area where it's cheaper to travel and so on makes an awful lot of sense. Um, but what if you can only afford to do stuff that's on your own doorstep? And our correspondent talks about, um, you know, perhaps wanting to go to Sweden first. And I think that, you know, if he's got limited time and limited money, then working out what he really wants to do, what are the key things are going to help him to use that time and that money wisely? And he was talking about wanting to improve his off-roading skills. Well, there's an awful lot of off-roading in in Sweden to do. Um, Perhaps do an off-road training course before he does um, heads off to do that sort of thing so that he can take advantage fully of the time that he does get and the money that he's got available when he goes away. I mean, or or would he like to do um, a a tour of the back roads and small towns? In that case, how many kilometres does he want to ride um, a day? Does he want to do things like stop and take photographs and talk to people and go into old churches and museums? Or does he just want to ride the dirt and cut? In which case, don't buy so much gear except for... um, dirt road riding specific um, because that's where a lot of the budget gets eaten up isn't it by the stuff that you buy um, to allow you to go off traveling but also by then you squandering your time by just going out and dicking around unless of course that's what pulls your chain just point in the right direction and see what happens but yeah by working out what he wants out of the trip maybe that would actually help him to use his time and money I like his last line in here, last two lines. Thanks a million for the greatest podcast ever. I've listened to all the ARR shows for the last couple of years and all the raw shows made amazingly educational. Thank you very much. Very cool. Yeah, I wish him well. It's it's kind of a sad story because of uh, the situation with his wife. But he seems like a guy who's going to make the most of it and the best of it and uh, he'll get out there and ride and maybe when his daughter's a bit older she might want to go on the back with him and uh, and they can do some things together and then come home and share it uh, share it with um, with his wife and she can travel vicariously with them mm, I like that yep. that's a good I, idea I really respect this guy for taking his responsibility seriously I, I think he's very cool and yeah, I think it's I very cool for not letting his dream die. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, but that's the important thing. If people can get into a situation where life ends because somebody else, because in this situation, I mean, you could say, okay, my life is over. I'm stuck here now and that's it forever. And that that's a horrible place to get into. But it sounds like he's going to make the best of it and do what he can and take care of his responsibilities and big kudos to him for that. But he's still got to get out there and do a little bit for himself too. That's really important. Yeah. Actually, I've just had a thought. 
the last couple of weeks, I've been having a lot of reactions a little bit too late. Think, oh, I should have said this. I should have done that. There was a guy I spoke to at the show the other week who had, was in similar situations, an older guy had spent a long time nursing his mother and now his mother had passed and was saying, oh, you know, it's too late to get into adventure. And he was looking at the books and he said, oh, you know, I'm on a pension. And I thought afterwards, I should have bloody just given him one, you know, a book. And uh, then, uh, so I'm thinking right now, um, if uh, this guy is anonymous, isn't he, this guy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If he sends a mess, uh, his address to Jim, I'll send you one of my books for free, just to help you through the months where you're not riding. Ah, very, very nice. Cool. Very nice. Okay. I'll, I'll do the I'll do the same. Be an absolute pleasure. Yeah, to. we will too. Okay. Sure. Oh, that's fantastic. My idea, I, it was my we can idea. Do it yeah, 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 all right. Sure, <laughs> I we'll, 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 we'll sign the Graham out. Field. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you'll get all the credit, Graham. It's Graham's fault. Well, since it's Graham's idea, he can pick up the postage for it. How about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, mate. <laughs> Yeah, me mum will pay for the postage. She's the one who takes it to the post office. Oh, I'm not mum again. <laughs> well, I, I guess we're um we're on to plugs now. So um Graham, oh. what have you got? <laughs> me. Okay, well I wanted to say a big thank you to the thirty-six people who pre-ordered the audio book. I am completely and utterly underwhelmed by the response. I thought <laughs> that perhaps using this crowdfunding system to help pay for the expenses of studio and editing and design and CD printing, um, that possibly if even 1% of the listeners of Raw had wanted the audio book, and half of that 1% had pre-ordered the audiobook, I would have made my target. But clearly, I underestimated the market. So we have reduced production to meet the demand. And thank you to the 36 people who did pre-order it. Happy Christmas. <laughs> I <laughs> have like to... Grinch. <laughs> Yeah, there's a definite bar humbug there. Yeah, <laughs> but I have to say, I am impressed with what you did with the discs that you made for the people who ordered the DVDs, because being that they, they're the KLR uh, brake rotors. I thought that was yes, yeah, pretty which, original. I know it doesn't quite work on your side of the Atlantic, but we call them discs on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, so we call them discs too. I just had a more, more, brain fart is what I was trying to say. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> And I thought it was static interference. <laughs> it could have been that too. <laughs> but see, now I would have ordered them, Graham, but I don't have a KLR. <laughs> or a disc player. Or, but, but what you've got, which the other 99% have, is an excuse. He's <laughs> <laughs> well, firing so this what, morning. Was that really a plug? It felt like... It felt like a tongue lashing. <laughs> but what's the point? Nobody bloody listens. I do adverts on the books. I sell one. I do promotions on the audio book. I get a pre-order of 36. What's the point? What's the point? I mean, how do you think we survive? Huh? How do you think we survive on the road? You ask these questions. Oh, you're an author. You make loads of money. No, we bloody don't. I've just been at a motorcycle show in the UK that cost me more money than I made. Don't tell me I'm making a wonderful lifestyle. Oh, I'll buy a book and contribute towards your lifestyle. No, I'll be on a week tonight. Maybe. You ever been in that situation where you just think, why did I ask? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, especially Graham. <laughs> They'll all plead poverty, but Graham especially. Yeah, bar humbug, and he's just given away a heap of books to a very yeah. Well, I can't sell them. Yeah, well, well, I might sell them away. Ah, that's why you're giving them away. <laughs> Well, despite the rhetoric, your books are good and they do sell. I know they do sell. So, And as I said, too, I was working with a guy called um, Derek Mansfield. He's a lovely sort of older guy. He's got a wonderful way with people. And uh, I was sitting at the show. I wasn't selling anything. And he's very good at it. Because he's, 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 he's kind of shortish and he's an older guy. He's not offensive or intimidating. And he'll go up to uh, the couples and he'll say to the woman, are you with this man? And she says, yes. And he says, does he accept Christmas presents? And he says, and he takes her by the hand and says, come with me, come with me. And then shows, shows in his book and, and, and has wonderful results from the sales. I can't read it. But um, I was sitting there in the show on my stool, not talking to anybody and drinking a beer. And he came over and he said, are you reading your own book? And I said, yes. <laughs> and, he, and I said, you know what I've decided? The most vindictive thing I can do is not sell it to these people because it's bloody brilliant. I'd rather be Prime of it. <laughs> I just wonder, Graham, whether you're cut out for doing these motorcycle shows. <laughs> I, I have decided after the last one that no, I am not. You know, I ride alone, <laughs> I write alone, I live alone. What on earth makes me want to be surrounded by people trying to cold sell my book? Here, read about me, read about me, read about me and my book. I am never doing another show. It is over. <laughs> well, you, you have cats at home. Yeah, but they don't talk back. <laughs> well, hang on a minute. They, they don't, don't buy books back. either. No. Funnily well, enough, well, yesterday I found um, photographs of you, Graham, from the first motorcycle show you ever did at Motorcycle Life. And um, I'm going to send them to Jim so that he can put them on the website. Was he happy or grumpy? <laughs> oh, you're going to have to check the website to see. <laughs> certainly wasn't one, cynical. <laughs> well, Shirley and I have just done the motorcycle show at the Sydney uh, Motorcycle Expo, and uh, I think those were the exact same words tumbled out of your mouth, Shirley. We never done oh, yeah. another one of these steam shows. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, you make nothing as, a, as an author. You, um, uh, We were put up in a hotel which was – uh, three stories, a dingy place in Darling Harbour, which even self-respecting prostitutes wouldn't use because it's three flights upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that, believe me, there's plenty of prostitutes around here. They're actually going around soliciting business inside the uh, the, the show. Um, but we had a bit of fun, didn't we, sure? Look, we did have fun didn't and we? we met a lot of nice people, but um, it's a very tiring experience. It is. I'm keeping really quiet here, but actually, I'm not going to. I love the shows. I think they're brilliant <laughs> fun. I spend. I mean, this the motorcycle live is nine days long. So, by the time you've travelled and set up and everything else, you're away from home um, for eleven or twelve days. Um, for the nine days of the show, I spent all day, every day, talking to enthusiastic, buzzy people who were fascinated by travel, and I just had a ball. And I don't get sore feet and I don't get a sore back because I'm bouncing around and I'm talking to people and making new friends and talking to people who've interested in going off traveling and um, people who listen to Adventure Rider Radio and, yeah, I really enjoyed this bit and that bit and everything else. I just get to the end and and I'm smiling and I may not have made a huge amount of money, um, but it's been a really good experience and 
I'm not getting any skinnier. You know, the thing is too, though, the books that you guys put out make a big difference. Like I think, you know, you could probably easily forget that you make a big difference to the person, to each individual person that reads them, you know, or maybe not everyone, but I mean, to some people, it makes a huge difference. And it, it, um, I think that's really important. I think it's important to, you know, keep as a perspective. Yeah. Jim, we met a a couple, uh, we met a couple in Sydney who um, wanted to have their photo taken with us. Because uh, at a previous motorcycle show, they bought our book Circle to Circle. And uh, since reading that book, they had done the trip. Wow. That's neat. They had shipped their bike to South America. And actually, they, I think they shipped yeah. their bike to North America and did the trip in reverse. But they said if they hadn't read our book, they wouldn't have done it. So that was an awesome experience to meet them. Yeah. It's just like it makes it all worthwhile, I'm sure. Well, that's that, Oh, look, that's it does. Right. You sure, don't do sure. it for the money. No, no, and she'll just gets a bit jaded towards the end of it, don't you, darling? Oh, I don't mind. I know because I'm Sam. old and grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not as grumpy as Graham, but I'm. <laughs> That's just today. Yeah. It's when you try and give out a leaflet, and it's like you, you, the reaction you get, like you're handing out a parking ticket. It's just a flyer, mate. That's all it is. <laughs> it might read it and enhance your life, but actually, I think I'm going to leave you in the misery you're so happy in. <laughs> <laughs> And you did nine days. Oh, my God. Well, nine days, that's, no, a, that's a long six. time. You did six. No, I did six. I'd had enough, you know. It's a limit how much money you can lose. <laughs> but um, Sam's behind me. We're back to back. And uh, he's, I mean, he's, you, it, you've got – I can't do that. It, when someone comes up who n- knows you or read your book or listened to you on Raw or see you at a previous show, brilliant. Love those chats. Love those conversations where they're talking about I was a truck driver too or – I did a trip because of yours or any aspect of it. That's great. But I cannot do what Sam does and stand out in an aisle with a flyer, basically cold selling. I can't do that. I just can't. Yeah, I find flyers are quite useful because they give me something to talk to people about and and it gives people something to walk away with. So, you know, their minds are focused on the bikes that they want to go and see or they're getting a coffee or making it to the loo, whatever. Um, and so by having a flyer, they've got a chance to actually have a look at it later. But, you know, I don't think of it as being cold calling. I just think of it as being um, introducing adventure to people. Um, and yeah, it just kind of works. Um, but um, it, was, yeah. it was like that prostitute, Shirley. She was handing out cards. She she was. Was. I've got one here. I've got one here. Kisses. Kiss <laughs> Brian that was why your phone keeps ringing, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> she might be handing out more than that. You might be in for a surprise. <laughs> yep, free gifts. <laughs> so, Shirley, do, do you have a plug? Or well, the- no. I mean, our, our only plug would be, there. you know, if you wanted to buy our books now for Christmas, you'd have to download them, and that's as good as anything. And we just hope everyone has a very pleasant Christmas. Uh, and That's Brian, it, really? does that go with you? Do you have something separate to plug? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I, look, I'm only surely on that. Christmas is about fun and fellowship and, and being with people and, and having a good time, and that's what it's all about. So everyone enjoy it. And, you know, we've got some young travellers that we've encouraged who are on the road now, and um, I'm making sure that they're, they're, they're seeing uh, the right people as they're going around, and uh, hopefully they'll have a good time over the Christmas break and uh, meet up with some great people. So that's what it's all about. None of this bar humbug like Graham. <laughs> I'm going to jump back to Graham just for a quick second. Graham, you, you've got books and, and you've got now an audio. Is the audio book done? It's all ready to ship out, is it? 
Uh, yeah, actually, uh, Tom from Adventure Bike TV is doing the duplication of it. And he just sent me a little video last night of the duplication machine. It looks like a jukebox. Out pops a, a disc, which has been recorded on one side, printed on the other, and then it goes onto a little stack. So they're probably they're probably just about done now. They're going to be sent to me mum, who is then going to put them into the 36 envelopes and then send them <laughs> off. <laughs> but for those who might now be interested by listening to you talk about your story and, and interested in ordering those, they can order those from your website as well as your books. Um, and, and actually your books in North America are all available. I think they're all available, aren't they? Yeah, Road Dog have bought out uh, Insect Green Grasses, Eureka is, I don't think different natures is, because Paul Mike of Road Dog um, had a little accident, so things got delayed. But um, yeah, they're sort of available in, in North America in a sort of staggered and slow kind of way. So, um, Grant, what do you have for a plug? Well, we have a whole bunch of uh, adventure meetings coming up next year. We've been working hard at getting all sorts of new meetings organized and opening registration. So I'm not going to read off the list. It's literally too long. We'll be here all night. I think we've got something like 25 events going on this year and new ones in Italy. Um, we've got a hum in Arizona, Chile. We just opened up registration today, in fact. Uh, of course, we've got Montenegro again. We're talking to Sweden about a meeting in Sweden, too. And uh, Indonesia will be opening soon, and all the rest of the usual suspects. So there's lots of events. Check out the schedule. And here's a really important reminder to everybody who's going to go somewhere this year. Have a look at the event schedule, horizonsunlimited.com slash events. See what's on. And if you can schedule your trip to get to one of those meetings, you'll have a wonderful opportunity to meet local people, real travelers, and some other travelers and connect with a lot of people and find out where's the good places to ride in the area, where's the good places to stay, make all kinds of connections with great travelers, and maybe meet them again in another meeting halfway around the world. So check out the event schedule. There's lots going on. And the last thing I've got for you is calendars, a 2018 calendar. Mm. If you want to give somebody a really great Christmas present that will keep them excited and buzzing to get out traveling to some wonderful places, 13 fantastic pictures in a giant size calendar. It's out there. It's available. And we're even doing a special buy four calendars and give them to your friends. And you get free shipping anywhere in the world. How's that for a wow. deal? Wow. Calendars are expensive to ship, too. Let me tell you. <laughs> hey, Shirley, what about the Adventure Travel Film Festival? Do you want to plug that? Oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, Adventure Travel Film Festival in Bright. Uh, in February 9 to 11, and it is always loads of fun. Um, some of the English listeners may have been to the festival there this year. Um, we get the films at the following February from Austin Vincent, Lois Price, run the, the festival in the UK, and uh, it's always good fun. There's um, some interesting motorcycle movies, a couple of short films by Austin and um, some guys who drove Trabants and a communist-era motorcycle across South America, which, um, look, the people who make these films are quite crazy, but they're always entertaining. So it's Adventure Travel Film Festival slash Australia on the web. In Bright, and it's the best riding country in Australia. Hang, hang on, the, the address, say that again. Adventure, the Adventure Travel Film Festival. Dot com. 
Yeah, like a, yes. the, the web address didn't sound like a web address you gave out there. Oh, no, the, but when you go onto that website, click on the link to Australia and that will give you the the films and the speaking guests and they have a blow-up screen which they put down by the river and it's always hot in bright in February, so it's really nice to sit out in the cool evening air and watch a watch a film under the stars. Oh, yeah, that would be very cool. That uh, sort of goes back to the days of drive-ins. Yeah, only you take a chair. Yeah, that's nice. Brian, you're going to say something? Oh, no, I was just going to support Shirley. And, and um, there's a lot of people riding motorcycles up around that part of the world in February because it is just beautiful. And uh, t- a twisty road after twisty road, whichever way you go. So make your way to Bright. It's a great weekend. Sam, what do you have? Well, do you know, this has been a wonderful year and we're at Christmas and I'm feeling um, pretty darn thankful, actually, for having had such a good year. So I want to do some some thank yous. I want to thank the listeners for listening into the show and for supporting Adventure Rider Radio. Meeting the people that I've been meeting over the last six months in particular, just um, so many people are enjoying the show and getting something from it. And, you know, one of my comments is that I never walk away from an Adventure Rider Radio Raw without having learned something too. So I want to thank everybody that's on the panel. So thanks, mates. I think you're all brilliant. Oh, Next you up, I want to make well, well, very nice. Well, it's, we, it's we just love do, I fun. love doing it's, this. <laughs> I've had what we're doing described as it sounds like we're all sitting around a kitchen table in an old farmhouse and the whiskeys and the coffees and the teas and the banter and everything else and just what a nice atmosphere um, this show creates and the opportunity to learn. And it's just wonderful getting that sort of feedback and to see people enjoying and learning and yeah um rude remarks as well which is brilliant too Um, (laughs) my next thank you is to everybody who's followed along with contributed and become involved with horizons unlimited now i think that this is a brilliant community um and it's a community of sharing by enthusiastic people and I'm, I was thinking, you know, I wonder how many Adventure Rider Radio Raw listeners actually haven't yet got involved with Horizons Unlimited. And I'm, I think you guys should um, do that because, yeah, you're, if you feel at comfort at home with this show, then for sure you'll feel at home and learn with Horizons Unlimited. My next thank you is to everybody who's bought copies of books, yes, from Graham. Um, from Brian and Shirley and of course from me too and I just hope that they've been a great way to to share the fun and the drama of the road and when Brian and Shirley were talking just now about um, the people that they met who did the America's trip after reading Circle to Circle um, a young lad came to see me at um, Motorcycle Live and I'm guessing he was probably about 24 something like that and he said Sam we're heading to Africa I just wanted to let you know in a few weeks time I'm heading off down through Africa thank you and I just thought yeah I mean this is one of the key points about travel books it's sharing the fun and making people think that they don't have to be anybody special to head out and travel just open-hearted open-minded and free from responsibility and yeah um so thank you very much to everybody who has bought um books from us and Mates, I just hope that everybody has a fantastic Christmas and I hope that everybody's new year is filled with adventures, whatever shape and size they come in. 
So I'm feeling really thankful. Thank you, everybody. Well, well said, said, Sam. Sam. Oh, Thank you. Thank you. Can't add any more than that. Well, well done, it, it sort of covers what I was going to say as well. I, I was just going to thank everyone yeah. for listening and, and being a part of the show. I mean, the, the feedback that we get, and, and we get a lot, we get it through email and, and then on social media as well. And it's just absolutely fantastic. And I think it's the same as, you know, you guys who have written books. It's just so nice to know that you're you're making at least some sort of difference for some people. And, and I think those are the things that make it all worthwhile. You know, when life gets hard and things get tough, it's those things that really are the nuggets that sort of draw you through. So um, we're, we're also, uh, when I say we, Elizabeth and I are, are very grateful. And, and of course, for you guys, I mean, you guys are, are great to have on the show. And this being our, our 24th show, I think it's fantastic what we sort of accomplished here in the 24 shows. And I, I look forward to what we're doing next year. Well, I just want to add... Um, something I always try and do and, and very seldom succeed in is live in the moment. But I know it's a very important place to live. And doing this show has now become a little bit of a routine because we've been doing it for nearly two years. And I try and appreciate that once a month I'm going to get a call and the six of us are going to chat. Seven, because you should include Beth, because she's the unsung hero. And I'm really, this thing won't last for enough ever, nothing ever does. But I really appreciate this thing that we're doing and I really enjoy it. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a good bunch of people. I really enjoy these couple of hours that we do once a month. Yep. It's good for me too. I always find a lot of our t- my time is spent sitting in front of a computer and I do emails and web design and all that stuff. And actually being able to sit down with you guys and, and talk about travel and, and laugh and have a good time. It's wonderful. It's being able to connect with people, especially during the winter when we don't really see much of people because when we get out in the summer, we get to the to the events, we talk to people, but now we're kind of snowed in and it's cold and it's ugly out there and can't ride and it's wonderful to be able to talk to people and I hope that the listeners out there feel like they're sitting around the fire with us, having a good time, talking about travel. Keep the fires going. And maybe next year we will all be in the one place at the one time and won't that be havoc? That will be quite incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Trying in at that, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's to 2018. Yes, Sounds good, everybody. Right. Looking forward to it. Are you going to ask us everybody. for Christmas? Yeah, what, what do you want for Christmas, Graham? Well, actually, at Motorcycle Live last month, I fell in love. And it wasn't with one of the lycra-clad girls because I've got myself a super hot girlfriend now. And actually, the lycra-clad girls aren't that appealing anymore. They just get one in the way of the bikes. What I fell in love with <laughs> was the new Bruff Superior. Oh, Ooh. my God. They, I walked past it every morning on the way to work and every evening on the way out. And they and normally, new production bikes don't do it, that do it for me. And I've sort of conditioned myself not to let them do it for me because it takes 10 years for them to grow on me. And by then, I can afford to buy one. But the Bruff Superior is something else. And I thought, well, brand new bikes, what's a new bike? Look, 10,000. If you think it's 10,000, it's probably 20,000. No, 57,000 pounds for a Bruff Superior Pendine Sand Racer. Wow. And that's what I want for Christmas. I am meant <laughs> to have that bike. <laughs> if you get have that to bike, bank. I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think I've my little Christmas plea spirit. earlier. You know, if every, every, every listener buys a box set, I'll have one by the new year. <laughs> <laughs> 
that. You are okay. shameless, Graham. Shameless. <laughs> <laughs> you can only dream of. I mean, the only people who can afford bikes like that are authors, really. <laughs> Absolutely true. And you're not helpful. <laughs> sure, not us poor web guys. <laughs> um. I'm going to be at the Timonium Bike Show on the 9th to the 11th of February in Maryland. Um, and I'm going to be there in conjunction with 20 Fingers Moto, which there will be more about later. Um, but yeah, it just suddenly occurred to me, if I don't talk about it now, I may be too late with the January show for people to pick up on it. So Timonium Bike Show in Maryland on the 9th to 11th of February. This was the show that um, Lois was um, at, Lois Price was at last year, and she was talking about her new um, Iran book, and um, Fox News picked up on it, and all of a sudden there's Lois Price saying on Fox News what a wonderful country Iran is. Um, <laughs> Gosh, there would have been Fox News commentators swallowing their tongue. There were. I mean, it was really funny because it was was a satellite um, TV company, I think, that had picked it up. And then all of a sudden, um, the segment's going out on Fox News and you could see the anchor woman just absolutely not knowing what to do with herself and not able to interrupt (laughs) this going on. Um, uh, There won't be anything quite so controversial from me. How long are you going to be in the States for? Um, it's probably about a week and a half. Berger and I are going to turn this into um, a holiday. So she's actually going to come across with me. Oh, nice. And um, this is going to be the first event that Birgit is going to have ever been at in the United States. So oh, um, it'll be a bit of a buzz. Yeah. Everybody get there and meet Birgit. Well, they can find out that she really isn't a figment of my imagination before I'm getting that in before anybody else does. Yeah, well timing. We we've seen some <laughs> photos now. I mean, it, it's true. It's real. I mean, the, you know, the mystery has been cracked. She exists. Photos I'm can impressed. be doctored, Jim. We all know that. <laughs> Photoshop. <laughs> was at the um, motorcycle life with me over both weekends, and it was just brilliant fun to have her there. And yes, you could tell who the Adventure Rider Radio Raw listeners were because they were coming up and saying, "Oh." So you aren't a figment of Sam's imagination. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wish everyone a happy Christmas and um, hopefully we'll be all around this communal fire pit in the new year. Yeah, wonderful. Happy Christmas, everybody. Yeah, happy Christmas. Have a good Christmas and see you in the next year. See you next year. Well, that about wraps things up for this month, December, the last show of 2017 for ARR Raw. But before you go, I'd like you uh, to consider dropping by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com and clicking on the support button. Um, anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more is going to get your name mentioned on the show. It's our way of showing our appreciation for your support. Also, another way you can support the show, if you, if you don't want to do it financially, is to share it. Share this and Adventure Rider Radio every way you can. Get more listeners for us and, and we'd certainly appreciate that. So I want to give some special thanks to, of course, our producer, which is Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. As well to my co-host, Graham Field, lives in Bulgaria. He's got some great adventure motorcycle books. He says, the most innovative and desirable travel book packaging ever conceived, the Pannier Replica box set. That, if you haven't heard us talk about it already, that's his box set of books in there. The sexiest thing, he says, that you can put on your shelf, containing three books with over uh, 150 Amazon five-star reviews. 
So drop by his website, www.gramfield.co.uk. And of course, Sam Manicom lives in the UK and he has four paperback books that will take you through different countries of what turned out to be his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. You can either get them direct from Sam or via thebookdepository.com. That's thebookdepository.com when that gets you free worldwide delivery. And all four are available as audiobooks for download from iTunes or Audible. Or you can get an MP3 audiobook uh, CD direct from Sam at his website, www.sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks also have great adventure motorcycle travel books out. You can see what they've got um, by dropping by their website, www.ozziesoverland.com.au. And uh, their books are available through just about all the places you can get ebooks as well. And of course, Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub literally for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up to date travel information as well as a huge forum connecting travelers around the world. They also put on the hub meets around the world, the hum meets. There's so much going on. On there. You've got to drop by the website and check it out. www.horizonsunlimited.com. My name's Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. See you next month.